Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off. The truth on the Houndsman XP Podcast Network is fueled by joy. Joy Dog Food has been in business for many decades, since the 1940s. They've never had a recall. They only use 100% American-made products to bring you a dog food formula that is going to keep your hounds on their feet and performing at a high level late round bound the next bear race the next cat race whatever you got going joy can keep your dog fueled up i personally feed joy for this reason they are not afraid to get in the trenches and get in the fight they will show up at a local meeting where people are trying to pass tethering laws or uh, breeders bills or whatever and put their name on that and put their reputation on the line to support us So find Joy Dog Food on the internet, find that dealer locator, find a dealer near you. If you can't find one, contact them directly and have a rep get their butts down there and get a dealer set up so you can start feeding Joy Dog Food. Fueled by Joy. Heath Hyatt, Chris Powell, The Truth, (laughs) the Houndsman XP Podcast Network. Uh, We got the gang together today. I don't know how yeah. I got roped in. I like this. it. Anything that says the truth behind it, there should not be a hound, a houndsman, or a hound's name behind the truth. That is that is true in most cases. I, I will not debate that. One of the reasons we are here together today is, for one, I want to talk about, uh, I just sat down with the president of the Kansas Houndsman Federation, uh, I know the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance has just has just come under some new I want to say new management, but that ain't the way yeah, these things that, that ain't the way <laughs> these things work. But you know, new management with Bryce Matthews and of course Jerry Malls very active in that and stuff. And so we were going to kind of touch on houndsman's rights, uh, your state hound federation, all that stuff. And I thought you guys would be awesome for it. How was Bryce? I haven't talked yeah. to him in a while. I saw him at the, uh, we had a meeting a week or so ago. I guess it's been a couple weeks hey, ago now. While you, while you guys discuss this, my heather's outside barking. I got to go let him back in. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, so uh, he doesn't know where the mute button is for the mic, evidently. But yeah, we I saw Bryce a couple weeks ago. We had a, a kind of a kickoff CPR meeting for the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance, trying to breathe some life back in that thing, and and uh, had a really good turnout over at over at uh, Green Castle, and Jerry and Jeff Morgan and some, Mike Shepard, some of the existing board officers got together to uh, to uh, try to try to get some interest in getting this thing back off the ground. And the way it all started was Scotty Christian reached out to me uh, last winter and asked what it was going to take to get it done. And the reason for that is because 
there's just a lot of stuff that affects coon hunters that I don't think a lot of coon hunters um, think about a lot until it's until it's staring them in the face. But but anyway, the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance had another meeting. They elected new officers, new directors. Uh, I've been working with Bryce on a few issues, trying to get some things lined out and uh, make sure that it's moving forward. So he's energized. He's got a good board behind him and officers, and I'm looking forward to what they can they can get rolling again because it's, it's just one of those deals, man. You, you, you get into one of those organizations and you see guys sitting back and people not participating. You send out emails and you try to get things rolling, and it sounds like nobody gives a crap. And so you just lose the fire for it. And for a while, it's it's like the old rule, uh, church rule. You know, you go to church, 10% of the work, 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. And uh, it's like that in any organization. But at one time, we ran the numbers for Indiana on coon hounds. And we were over 10,000 registered coon hound, o- or coon hound owners that had registered dogs with UKC. And the highest number of people that we ever had in membership was like 330 people. Wow. And yeah. it's like, what the heck are the rest of you doing? Are you guys just that, here for riding out, riding this train for free? And, and we're getting stuff done, right to retrieves and felonies for shooting dogs and getting running seasons extended and different things. And when there's a problem, they all wanted to come out and talk about it. But they wouldn't show up to banquets. They wouldn't show up to meetings. You couldn't get people involved, and and that's what ultimately caused the burnout with with the old board. Well, you talk about ten thousand registered, you know, coonhound owners. That's not counting the running dog guys, uh, the guys that have retrievers and that, pointing that dogs. That number that number might be high. That might have been the total number of yeah. registered hounds. I don't, but I mean, it was. Well, even then, there's over a thousand at least. Oh, yeah. that, that's bottom line thousand. Yeah. And so one third of those are participating in, in this stuff. And that that's not enough. And, and in the past, I've been just as guilty of it as anybody else. You know, we have the Missouri sporting dog Alliance, wonderful organization. Uh, but it comes to a point where someone has to just take the bull by the horns and, and do all that stuff and recruit all those members and do all that things. And a lot of times it's like you said, a one man operation. And it shouldn't be that way, but that's the way it is. And and usually one guy steps up, uh, one or two guys do 90% of the work, and the rest of us just sit back and reap the benefits. And we probably should, you know, change that. There's no doubt about it. Um, it gets tiring, you know, and, and, and or, state organizations like that, uh, somebody's, drive, somebody's putting their own money in their gas tank to drive to Indianapolis for fish, fish and wildlife meetings and to drive to some of these public hearings and different things like that. And after a while, it, you just get to the point, you're looking at it and you're thinking, what's the use? Nobody else, doesn't anybody else care or, yeah, you know, stuff like that. And, and you look at organizations like the Wisconsin Bear Hunters Association, they can't pass a deer hunting rule in Madison, Wisconsin, without that organization being consulted by the Fish and Wildlife Department up there. You know, that's how much, how well organized they are. That's how much work they put into it. They've got directors in different regions. They have regional events. I mean, one of their, one of their regional events, they can pull in 10000 10 to $12,000 in a weekend regional event. And then at their convention, 
the one year that I was there, they generated fifty grand just in just from that one event. They've got a full time lobbyist. Yeah. They've got sponsorships. They've they're doing it right. Carl Chattel and and his crew up there. I mean, they they've got it figured out, and they've they've positioned themselves in a good way that nothing gets done. You can't you can't pass a you know a squirrel season or a change of the squirrel season without them having their hands on it and having some input on it. And that's the way it should be because you look at the Iowa Bow Hunters Association; they have a lot of pull. Uh, a lot of trappers associations have a lot of pull and houndsmen are notorious bickerers amongst each other. Uh, we love them. Don't get me wrong. I love all the, the running dog guys and I love all the coonhound guys and all the squirrel dog, bird dog, you name it. Of course, working for joy dog food. I want to make sure and feed every dog on the planet. I don't care what kind of dog it is, but there's a lot of factions between that, you know? Oh. Yeah. PKC, Tri- PKC versus UKC. There's walkers there's, versus Bluetooth. Yes. Blue versus breed factions. Pans. Yeah. There's everything. And we have a bad habit of not coming together as a community unless our backs are really against the wall. Now I'll give them credit when it, they're really pushed. Uh, you know, they're, they're great. They're fantastic. Best bunch of people on the planet, but they have to have a huge push. And sometimes after that push comes, it's too late. Heath, what do you think? You're, you're sitting there in the heart of it right now with, with everything going on. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts, <laughs> but yeah, I, we can't. None that you want to make public. <laughs> Some of them I should probably keep to myself. But <laughs> This is the I truth, know. Heath. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think sometimes we need to be in front of things and behind, instead of behind it, kind of like what Josh was saying, that, you know, we've got hundreds, if not thousands of bear hunters in the state of Virginia, um, coon hunters. I, you know, we y'all were talking about the coon clubs are definitely dwindling. Um, two of the clubs that I used to hunt at locally don't even exist anymore. Um, but I think that we we need to get organized. What you're saying, Chris, and we should be in front of it. We should have a presence, uh, regardless of what's going on. Um, you know, we we need to be more involved. And you know, I told you last year that I was going to make it a purpose for myself to get more involved. So, yeah, I mean, you got, you got to get, you got to get part, be a part of these, these organizations, these groups and be professional and get ahead of it, get in front of it. I think a lot of it is there's so much, I mean, if you're running for a truck ticket in PKC, you're running a lot of hunts. I mean, you're on the road and you're, you're trying to, and over the course of time, of being in that many casts or whatever, then sooner or later, there's going to be a little bit of hard feelings developed between some people, you know, somebody made a bad call or somebody got away with making a, a bad call or, or whatever it is. And instead of looking at that competition as a competition and the breaks of the game, we internalize that. And then when we see people in these hound organizations, like I ain't getting involved in that thing. Cause so-and-so screwed me out of a cast win down at Logansport three weeks ago or last year. And when we internalize that and we carry it with us and we fail to realize that it's a freaking game that you're playing with the coon hound, but what you're dealing with, with not getting involved is 
a termination of the thing that you love to do, the lifestyle, the freedom, all the things that we want to preserve and, and make sure that we have for the future. We got we got to stop internalizing all this stuff and and put our big boy pants on and get out there and get involved and and find out that this guy I I, I can give you examples. You know, I interviewed Bub Blackwell last week uh, for the podcast and Bub and I have never had problems but but there's other people that I I got to know him through the PKC circuit. I'll give you a good example and I'm not trying to call anybody out but but judas bowling judas bowling and i when i was working judas bowling and i weren't friends <laughs> you know it was a professional thing we have a bad habit of not being friends with game wardens chris <laughs> oh, i get that i understand <laughs> and i'm but, not saying it's a good habit i did say it was a bad habit yeah and i get it and the, the, sometimes the game wardens are just as guilty of of harboring that bad relationship as anybody but the point was now that i've stepped away from that and i'm not in that role anymore the guy's a hard hunter his yeah. heart's in the right place i mean he's doing a lot of good stuff he's got a big heart he tries to include people and and things you know so i've seen a whole different side of that but if i just ridden on what i my impressions if either one of us wouldn't would have written on our our opinions from 15 years ago we wouldn't even talk now no and what we have to realize is that everybody evolves uh coon hunters as they as they're coming up through the circuit like i did at 10 years old all the way up now till i'm 42 uh my opinions my outlook my everything has changed and so i'm not the same person i was when i was a little punk ass brat kid arguing with you on a cast you know yeah. I'm, I'm i'm a different guy now and maybe i'd like to think for the better that's not always the case but usually for the better and but we have to put all that petty stuff aside because i've had guys that i've drawn when i was young that kurt Aaron's a perfect example uh the mm -hmm. first time i drew kurt i was 16 17 years old uh we weren't a fan uh, you know, we weren't, right. we weren't best buddies by any means, but as, as I matured and as I realized the value in Kurt and the great things that he, he can do for the sport and, you know, everything changes, everything evolves, everything's different. And so we can't hold old grudges over a cast, but for one, uh, I, I look at a cast like Facebook. It's not real life. <laughs> you know, those, those same yeah, those those same people that are that are saying things on Facebook are not like that in person. Right. You know, they're they're everything's different. And so like you you got a good point. You we can't hold old grudges. We can't do that. We have to work for the good of the community as a whole. The time is now. I mean, there is no more time to kick this can down the road. We've got stuff happening. Maine has just enacted and and you gotta understand the dynamics of Maine. Maine is like Vermont. Some of these northeastern states have this public use of private property clause built in to their – Vermont's got it in their con state constitution. Maine has always observed it, which means that if, unless your property is posted, your private property, it's open for public hunting. Maine just passed a deal where it's not open to bear hunters anymore. It's not open to coon hunters anymore. Fox hunters, coyote hunters, all those things. The property owners got together and said, 
we don't like it and we're cutting you off. Yeah. And um uh they even they we posted it on our Facebook group, but they even went as far as saying that a hound to be found on a piece of property uh within the same year time span then the hunter or the owner of that hound could be cited for criminal trespass. So, I mean, coon hunters, the bear hunters and the lion hunters out West, they get it. They know they've fought the battles. They've seen, you know, center for biological diversity and the mountain lion foundation and HSUS come after their hunting rights, Oregon and Washington, both law and California, all lost their ability to hunt. And the coon hunters back East here, Coons are always going to be a pain in the ass. We're always going to have problems with coon, and our ag, our ag community is going to step up and say, control the coons. So they're not going to come after it like that. They're going to we come also after get to do everything at night. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But the, the antis are coming after our, our ability to, to keep hounds, how we house them, how we, how we license them with our county governments, all these little ways to attack our ability to own the hound breeding bills. I mean, the, how many intact females you can keep, how many intact males you can keep, how many puppies you produce. So coon hunters have got to wake up and realize that it's time, man. It's a go time. Now I'm going to give you guys a question here. How much, and I've preached this before and I know you have Chris as well as Heath. How much does self-regulation play into that in our perception to the non-hunting or non-hound owning now non-hound hunting public uh we have to re be really good at policing ourselves i think and there's a lot of uh, you know just as well as i do especially in the social media age one bad apple casts a large light on the rest of the community so heath especially out east where you guys where you live how does that affect you guys as far as, you know, you want to make sure everybody's minding their P's and Q's, doing things the right way and all that stuff, and, and how important is well, that? Well, it's funny you said that because we, you know, I, I have a small group that we hunt with. Um, there's about five of us, that six of us that have hounds. We have several that follow along. So let's say there's 10 of us. Um, we have talked about policing ourselves to make sure that we're doing – um, what we're supposed to be doing and taking care of the, the stuff that we're supposed to be taking care of. I ran into a landowner uh, last weekend that joins the National Forest, and our dogs have treed on him several times, but he's from out of state, and he just happened to be there. I seen his gate open, so when I seen his gate open, I'm driving by, I stop, get out, walk into his cabin, introduce myself, tell him, you know, hey, this is who I am. You know, we hunt here. I know you've got this land here. And I said, you know, I just want to be honest with you. I said, you know, we tree several bear on your, your 85 acres. And, you know, I want you to know who I am and want you to know that that we're going coming in and we're getting our dogs and we're leaving. And that if we can ever do anything to help you, here's my phone number. So we are trying to build relationships with the landowners, kind of like what Chris was saying you know, with what's going on in Maine, and you're saying it too, Josh, one, and he's had run-ins with, with bear hunters, and I'm just, I'm being, yeah. you know, I'm talking about bear hunters. He's had run-ins with them where they they just thought they could run over top of him. And in Virginia, as of today, 
we do have the right to retrieve. That may change in the near future. And we kind of feel like the same thing that Maine passed is probably going to come down to us eventually. So I've told our guys, we have talked about it. I'm sitting around the camp, you know, cooking out, grilling. We camp out a lot together. We have talked about, you know, build those relationships, be nice to those people. And if they tell you they don't want you on there, you know, explain to them just, hey, I get that. I will respect your property. I just need to get my dogs so they're not in there all day and having a heat stroke. Uh, So I think it's very important. And I feel like it is very important that we police each other. Now, with that being said, some of the bigger groups that have lots more people, it doesn't happen. Um, And that's what causes most of us trouble. And you, you guys trouble too, because you come in and you coon hunt and your dog gets on their property and then you're having the same issue I'm having. So I think it's, um, I think it should be on the top of the priority list for any hound hunter to be building relationships with landowners and not burning the bridge. I know that there's a mentality amongst Midwestern coon hunters and I've shared it. Don't get me wrong. I, I, at one point in time in my coon hunting career, it was, uh, and you'll see it on social media and you'll see it posted. It's, it's yours in the daytime, but it's mine at night. And you see that. And I used to say that and believe that and to believe that it was my God given right to drug, to go wherever I want. And then, then I bought some property. <laughs> and so we yeah. can't, we, here's, you, you got to picture a guy and, and here I am in the Midwest, right on the Iowa border. I'm in the deer hunting, one of the deer hunting capitals of the world. And a guy from St. Louis, he's lived in the suburbs all his life. He's never seen a hound dog, but he loves to whitetail deer hunt. And he spends, he works 60 hours a week for a large majority of his life. And then he takes all his hard-earned money and he buys a 40 to 60 acre tract in North Missouri. So he can still live in St. Louis and still come up to his cabin on his, on his deer camp and enjoy it with his family and his friends and everything. And I'm, I'm all for that. I understand. I I realize that he's wasted, not wasted. That would, that would be a wrong word, but, uh, he's dedicated a large portion of his life to a goal in the outdoors, just like we do. And he don't want to see that affected by some local houndsman that's hunted there all his life until he bought that property and decides that he can turn loose on it again. And so I understand where those guys are coming from. And I don't think a lot of houndsmen do, you know, that, that these people love the outdoors just as much as we do. Uh, and if you educate them correctly and and build that relationship, you're going to get permission on that piece of property. Uh, I've said before a thousand, at least he's not, at least he's not going to be running you off. If he, if if you do get over there, he'll understand It, it. Yes. And you don't, you don't have to, you know, say, Hey, I'm going to hunt your property and and that's it. You know, I've been hunting it for a hundred years, go in there, uh, bring him a big, big cake. Your wife made stop by the house and say, look, here's what we're doing. We have permission around you. Uh, if you don't get permission, I understand. Uh, but just don't shoot my dog. Don't, uh, don't come chew me out when my kids are around, you know, stuff like that. It, it's just these guys have just as much passion for the outdoors as we do, and we need to appreciate that. Can you imagine what could happen 
if a group of six guys got together and went like here where I live, Bear Branch, Indiana, we got a volunteer fire department right up the road here. We got dozens of landowners around here that deer hunt. And um, I've got a neighbor just like you described from Indianapolis. I mean, I can see his property line right on the edge of my yard from where I'm sitting. And he is a pain in my butt. Yeah. But I could do more to build that relationship with him. And I have worked hard to do that. But can you imagine what, what benefit could be if you could get six, six guys, half a dozen guys together to to pitch in some money, do a cookout, and invite landowners like that yep. while he's down? Opening week of de- weekend of deer season, you know, hey, at noon we're going to have a pot of beans and cornbread and desserts and different things. Man, we'd really like it if you'd come over. We'll feed you. It's, that- no, it's no different than me going to bear camp in Wisconsin. And explaining to them the differences in my dogs versus theirs. Exactly. Uh, they're, they're two different factions. There's two different ways of doing things. They both love the outdoors just as much. Uh, but it's different. And and they don't understand. It's my, it's my job to educate them. And it's all houndsmen's job to educate them, in my opinion. I'll add something, Josh. You asked the question about police and our own. And, um, of course, I probably have a pretty extreme view considering my background because I was the the police, but uh, and he the federales is, is what yeah. we always call them. Yeah. <laughs> Even if they were yeah. a state game warden, they were always the federales. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> but um, I've seen a big improvement on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, when people make those kind of comments, I'm seeing more people wade in and say, "That's a good way to get it all killed." That's a good, and I'm seeing that. I'm, you know, we used to see a lot of videos on on social media that weren't appropriate. Yep, I'm not seeing those anymore. A lot yep. of these admins of these groups and stuff are like, you post that here one time and you're gone. But and give a shout out to Go Wild yes. here too. Uh, their plat their platform, even though it's not as regulated as say a Facebook or an Instagram or something like that, the, the sportsmen on that platform have been fantastic at regulating themselves. I'm telling you, man, I have not seen one argument. It seems like you get on Facebook and it's just a license to puff your chest out and start arguing. I have never seen that. It's all been supportive. It's all been man. Nice job. They they've done a heck of a job over there. It's a fantastic platform. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I posted all of my, my hound content. Like I, I pretty much, if you want to go in depth on what I'm doing, I post it on Go Wild. I may put something in my my story that goes away in 20 hours, but other than that, I don't. Yep. I, I'm like, yeah, Josh, you're right. I mean, Go Wild is, um, it's the place to be for your outdoor stuff. And that's where houndsmen are policing themselves, and sportsmen of all kinds are policing themselves, and it's been fantastic from my point of view. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I I just made the public statement a couple months ago. It's like, you know, save, save Facebook for your grandma or your great aunt that wants to see what your kids are doing, but post all that hunting stuff over on go wild. Yeah. That that's the place to post it. And, uh, that's, that's my policy as well. I, I post hunting content on go wild. I pass, uh, post pictures of my kids and my garden and, you know, different life stuff over on other social media. Yeah. All the boring stuff goes on the other social media. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
What about educating the non-hunting public? And because that's something that through Joy Dog Food, I travel around and I get to see all the rural places, uh, all the mom and pop stores, uh, all the fantastic parts of America, in my opinion. I mean, it's it's great. Uh, you meet some of the nicest people and the greatest people. But I also run into fur moms that are worried about their Bashan or whatever dog they have <laughs> or, and, and I'm not good and I'll be the first to admit, and I've, I've told Wade this and others, I'm not good at relating to those people because I view dogs differently than they do. They're not and humans. Most ha- no, they're not humans. Yes. Uh, even I, I go to the extremist view on them as a tool. And, and that's a, that's, that's a, right. a, but that's a terrible word to some people, but I take very good mm-hmm. care of my tools. My my chainsaws and my four wheelers and my wrenches and stuff are all oiled and put right. up and and well taken care of to last a long time. And it's the same way with my dogs. You know they 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 get the best care, uh, but I don't view them as children as some people do. And that's the big thing with the non hunting public is dogs are held on this pedestal that a lot of houndsmen or working dog owners of any kind. I don't care if it's a bird dog guy or a retriever or. A, or a police canine or whatever, they're not viewed the same way. Uh, you look at war dogs. War dogs are, are there to save human lives. And that that's their purpose. And we appreciate them for it and, and all the breeding and the genetics and all that stuff that's went into it. But it, the United States especially has gone so far away from viewing dogs that way that it's hard to express to the non-hunting dog public that it's okay and and don't get me wrong, it's okay to view them as your baby or whatever. You can do that if you want, but don't don't hate on those that don't. Yeah. So how do we go about educating those people? I don't know, Josh. I you know being a trainer, I've had numerous people reach out to me to help train their their house dogs, their pets, their right. their baby. Right. I have to. And yeah. one of the biggest things that I run into is. No matter what I show them, no matter what I teach them, they don't want to set boundaries for those dogs. Like you, like you know, our dogs yeah. has boundaries. You know, we set up. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. Um, I don't know if you look at a percentage. I don't know how many people that you could actually sit down and have a conversation and be pr- productive. Um, so I just quit doing it. People call me. They text me. I say, you know, you'll have to reach out to. Um, yeah. Off leash canine, which they have one in Blacksburg and one in Chris. You have to reach out to one of them and do it because I just, yeah. yeah Find Caesar yeah, Milan. And- yeah. <laughs> sure. uh, Hope yeah, for the so best. I don't know. I mean, like I said, it's, you know, that the perception in their mind is it's their, their baby. And, you know, yeah. it's hard for them to understand our lifestyle and that, you know, this is, this is, this is a part of, this is part of history that we are actually continuing on. Because if you look at our forefathers, yeah. the the hound was a huge part of their um, way of life, and you know, it, yeah. And, and now look at the you know yeah. the 20th century, and we're in it, and you know we're still doing that, but we're doing it in a you know we don't have to have it for survival, but I mean it's a way of life for me. Like if you yeah. took my hounds away from me, I, I mean it would cut a big chunk out of my my being. 
you know, and I'm sure all, all of you. Yeah. Your existence. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I have other yeah. hobbies and stuff, but it's like I said, they're hobbies. They're not a way of life. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> even, even if it's not the hounds, it's a dog. I never leave my home without a dog. I, and, and people don't understand how I am, but I'm still not attached to that particular dog. Am I attached to a breed? Am I attached to a, a way of life? Sure. You bet. I most definitely am. I'm attached to training canines. I, I've done it all my life since I was 10 years old when I got my first Collie Chinese Sharpe cross and I decided to make it a coon dog. <laughs> to, and he did. He would tree the fire out of coons. <laughs> now you had to walk him over a lot of them, but he would tree the fire out of coons. But anyway, I'm attached to the training aspect of it, but I don't get attached to the individual. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, as long as you take care of that animal and you give that animal everything it needs, uh, to survive and thrive and, and die of old age, that's more than, than we can ask for. But the fact that it's not on my couch and, and not being loved like a baby, which is, is just an insane, insane theory to me, uh, people lose their minds. And I don't know if that's ever going to change. This, this anthropomorphism, the, the, attaching human traits to animals is a first world problem yes. and it's an indication that americans have are living a pretty fat life yeah you know you can still go to places in this world where if we don't catch enough fish tonight that dog's going in the pot yeah you know that's a that's a real world problem what we're dealing with is first world problems and and i think it extends to all parts of our culture in the way people view life, um, other, other cultures view life in a different way. Um, we, we, we just, we have become a culture of people that thinks we can live forever. Um, dogs and farm animals are utilitarian type, type animals for us. And, um, that's not to say that, I mean, I know what it was like when Heath lost Jack last year. You know, he, he, I talked to him about it. His, you were devastated, yeah. Heath. You were like, Christmas oh, man, Eve. Yeah. I lost Jack. Yeah. 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 And it, it's the pain wasn't any less real for Heath than it was for fur baby mama over here. But when, when we look at animals, whether it's a ranching community, farming community, whatever, I mean, I've raised it all right here. And those 4-H goats, the night before the sale, when they're getting ready to get on the loading, th the loading truck the next day and go to slaughter, my girls are out there and they're saying goodbye to their goats. But they also know. And that's going to be food. That's, you know, it's, it's got a purpose in this world. And we've lost that view. Mike Thorman made a comment on this podcast a long time ago that has stuck with me. And he made this statement. He said, the further people get away from the farm, the less they understand animal husbandry, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. We lose our view the further we get away from the farm. And to give some background on that, I mean, like in 1800, 75 percent of our culture was attached. They were, you were growing your own food. You were doing all that stuff. By 1900, that, that number dropped down to below 50%. And after World War II, you know, it drastically dropped. And now we got 3% of our country 
that has any ties to agriculture at all. So there you go. That's that's where we're at in our world. And we view dogs as utilitarian because they do a job for us, but that doesn't mean that the job they're doing for us is not important, that, that we don't highly value them. You know, I've got friends out west. The way they take care of horses is completely different than the way my wife took care of horses, yeah. you know. They depend on that horse for a living. You think they're going to allow it to be sick? You think they're going to allow it to to be in ill health? They're going to they're going to spend their money, they're going in time and and emotional investments and stuff like that. It's not just entertainment for them. You know, these two this boxer and this pit bull here, they're good entertainment in the yeah. house. And and but the hounds are what I truly love. And I'm I'm the same way, but still you look at you look at horses or uh we don't view horses as food which is still mind-boggling to me I'm, a horse looks delicious <laughs> yeah <laughs> but but uh horses are a tool you know a horse a horse in montana <clears throat> when i'm out there working or i'm out there bird hunting and them ranchers are carrying their horses around just like we do a dog in a dog box yeah you know that they are a they are a tool and they take very good care of their tools. If you have a good horse, that a, a good horse can save your life, just like a good dog can. Mm-hmm. And so you take as good a care of it as possible. But we don't attach those human emotions to cattle, hogs, rats, snakes, worms. Uh, but we do canines and horses. And <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't understand the difference. I can't fathom it. And I don't know how to educate those who, who view it. Well, back to your original question, you know, I think what you do is, or what we do as, as houndsmen is we do the best we can to explain it and explain why we do what we do. And, um, that, I mean, like it blows my mind that Virginia passed a law, that if it's below freezing, the dogs all got to come inside. That's I mean, crazy. It's, yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, how do I bring 14 dogs in my house? I don't, yeah. I can't, you know, but I feel like you explain it to them the best you can. And that's, that's the best we, that's all you can do. And if they accept it, fine. And if they don't accept it, then that's just the way life is with them. So... The Truth is sponsored by Havoc Hunting Supply. When you are looking for high-quality gear, go to the people that understand the demands you put on your gear. Havoc has a full line of top-quality hunting gear that meets those demands. Rugged hunting vest for the big game houndsman to the sleek, high-speed low-drag vest for that late-round-bound competition hunter. Havoc has what you need. The Havoc website features a complete line of hunting gear for the serious houndsman, and they feature that iconic Havoc logo. Go to HavocHuntingSupply.com and order your gear today. It's time to turn the hounds loose. It's time to wreak some havoc. I, I'll tell you how, how, how I found, and I don't know what the impact was after I left, but um, two years ago, during the height of COVID, blah, blah, blah. hate to even go back there and refer to that time, but, but we were bear hunting a lot out west. And uh, the national forests were full of people. 
that were out there recreating and stuff. And and we passed, we meet a, I think it was a Volvo. You could tell mm-hmm. it what. Or a Subaru. Yeah. If, if it's a fur mom, yeah. it's a Subaru. That's right. Yeah. My, Subaru, my Subaru's got Second Amendment stickers on the back of it. You know. Uh, just to know just to know you're not from Colorado, a Colorado yeah, hippie, right. you put Second Amendment stickers on it. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, Subaru is another one and I'll never buy I'll never buy a new Subaru because I'm going to I'm going to stop you real quick, Chris, because we went to my sister's wedding in Aspen and me and the kids drove around and counted the Subarus versus every other car. Now this is hippie Aspen. Yeah. Where where I went and bought some eggs and bacon for breakfast one time, and it cost me half my <laughs> retirement fund. And I bet you ninety two percent of the vehicles in Aspen are Subarus. It was hor- it's horrible. Oh, it's I ridiculous. Th- I've told my wife, I was like, we can't have another Subaru. I can't do this. We bought the and they're such great cars. It's disgusting. It's a two thousand eleven Subaru, or yeah, two thousand eleven. We're gonna drive it till the wheels fall off of yep. it. But after that. No more Subarus. You just have to get a Toyota so it makes you look like a man, hey, I guess. Uh, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. No doubt. But uh, I don't even – how did you derail that whole thing? I don't know. I, I, I was – I heard Subaru and my eyes were red. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know where I was at. So we met meet this car coming up the road, and uh, is, you could immediately see we were bear hunting and dogs hanging out the sides, and um, is a family. I was like, hey, stop. Larry Anderson was driving. I was like, hey, stop. I got out, and uh, the guy was scared. I mean, he was like, what are these guys doing, you know? And I said, hey, what are you guys up here doing? And and uh, he said, oh, we're just seeing the sights. What are you guys doing? I said, we're bear hunting. He's, he looks up, and he sees the dogs. Before it was over, the kids were out of the car. They were up there petting the ears on these dogs. It was all good. And I yeah. stopped with that intention because they have this big perverted view that the hounds are ferocious and you can't pet them and, and they'll hurt you and all this other stuff. So any opportunity that we have, you're passing that trailhead while you're out, while you're out hunting, pull in there, let them see the dogs. The, the kids will fall in love. The wives take their pictures. Hey, you want me to take a selfie with you with the, the bear, bear rig in the background? Yeah. Hey, you know, take a picture for you. That is all stuff that we can do. Yeah. We shouldn't. We shouldn't just drive by or try to avoid the. We have to be intentional in our efforts to educate the non-hunting public. And one of the things that, and I'm going to refer to them again, Wisconsin Bear Hunters does is they have landowner appreciation dinners in different regions of the state up there, and they come in and it's like, hey, come on in. We're having a big cookout. Blah blah blah. We're going to, and you invite these non-hunting people in because 90% of our culture now is non-hunting. Yeah. And they invite them in and they, they see a different side. It's not that confrontation at two o'clock in the morning and the guy's standing there in his, his uh, boxer shorts and they're holding a gun on you. There's, you know? there's a million things that we can do. One of the things, because a lot, especially now, as we get more urban, even hunters are more urban. There's yes. more coon dogs and bird dogs and stuff in town. I never uh, thought I'd see flat build caps at a coon hunt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we we love the fact that everybody's involved, but the fact that we are in a more urban society is another reason to do little things like keep your dogs quiet. Don't let your dogs bark all night. Your neighbor is not going to have a positive view of hunting with hounds if 
you've got that great big mouth dog running it, running its trap all night. Just little yeah. things. Keep keep your dogs quiet. Uh, mind your manners. Uh, pay attention to your neighbors, or your neighbors aren't going to pay attention to you. The ball's in our court every yep. time because they're not going to approach you. They're just going to sit back and develop opinions, and it's up to us to develop the narrative, control the narrative, you know, be out there, be proactive, take advantage of situations to educate, let them see that you've got your kid in the truck. He's great about taking his daughter with him, bear hunting and stuff. And, and, uh, you know, Maggie's right there and she's a great representative. People can relate to that. You're out recreating with your kids. I'm out recreating with my kids. You've got a common thread. Boom, you got it right there. And the yep. kids love the dog. I mean, yep. you, you've hunted with us, Chris. I mean, every one of us bring our kids with us. Like, it's a big party for them. I mean, you know, Matt, Maddie wants to oh, know yeah. when we're going hunting. You know, she wants to know when season's coming in and when, you know, when she can do this and when she can do that. So, yeah, I, the, having the kids with, which I want my my kids with me, but having them with us, it makes a it makes a, a different impression on some people. Yeah, and I think that bear hunting, uh, and I, I'll be the first to admit I have very limited, almost to the point of nothing, bear hunting experience. Uh, I've went for three I'm days. Glad you find, I'm glad yes. you finally re- acknowledged. <laughs> but <that>. but <laughs> we we go up to Wisconsin, we go to bear camp, and they say we're going to meet at the crossroads at six a.m. And at the crossroads in Wisconsin, there were maybe 40 or 50 trucks and there are 20 or 30 kids and there are way a whole bunch of different parties that are hunting together, but they all meet right there to see where everybody's hunting, what baits they're checking, what area they're going to be in. And it's a family affair. The kids are out there. And I had Bogan last year. He would only have been three, three and a half, four months old. And when I turned Bogan out of that truck, that little red healer, I bet you I had a swarm of children and wives and things like that over there petting on that dog. And it's it's a more family-oriented sport than people think. Uh, well, I, get, I get a lot of mileage out of hauling that boxer around. Yeah. You know, and I joke around about her being a bear dog. She's not a bear dog. I barely got anything here that's a bear dog. But uh, she's an attention getter. It's like, Oh, it's a boxer. When yeah, she's Heath, Heath on... was shaking his head when he said, I know. He I was Josh. When he comes up, I'm going to spray some white racing stripes in them dogs. <laughs> well, there you go. He's trying to slow him down so he can stay yeah. in the race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, that boxer is an attention getter from Houndsman yep. and from it's a dog that the public, it was intentional that I put her in the truck. And I took yeah. her to the Bear Woods, and and people would stop. It's like, is that a boxer? Yeah, that's a boxer. And they get out, and she's riding on the rig, and she's all happy. They can relate to that because they've yeah. got a boxer at home. Their yeah. neighbor has a boxer. Whatever. It's it's that was totally intentional to to start taking her with me. I've run into some problems with that because Bogan is trained to bite anybody that comes anywhere near my vehicle, and so I have to get him out set him in between my feet and tell him he's clear and that it's okay for let these let these people touch him but my hounds are in because i travel with one or two hounds and bogan everywhere i go and so i have this red healer i have i have the one or two hounds depending on how many dog boxes i feel like throwing in my truck and 
I'll have the hounds tied out, you know, say at a motel or at a campground or something like that. And they will walk way around the hounds and they will come to pet that healer that bites like crazy. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and so I, I realize that the non-hunting public is very uneducated about dogs and their body yeah. language and, and how they perceive in themselves. And, and, and Bogan has a big vest on him even that says, do not pet. That means reach, that means reach down and grab him. I apparently I found that out as soon as I put that vest on it we've got calls police canine I've got a caller that says do not pet oh what a lovely dog can I pet him no you cannot pet him unless you want to wear him (laughs) no (laughs) it's it's terrible to the point that I'm scared of where I can take him out and, you know, now that I'm, my routes are, are fairly, even if I'm in uh, southwest Wisconsin all the way down to Texas, I have certain places I stop where I know I won't run into people, where I can let Bogan free range and not have to put his vest on him and things like that to help him clean out. But the, the, the United States populace is very uneducated about dogs, very uneducated. They don't, under, they don't understand their body language. They don't understand no. what they're used for. Uh, none of that stuff. And so, They're, like you it, said, it's part of our job to educate them. It's just a hard way to go about doing that. You know what the crazy thing is? I just bought a handgun. Um, and the paperwork I had to do to buy yep. a handgun. Everybody knows a gun is dangerous. Yep. Everybody knows that. But that dog is can be just as dangerous as that handgun. And yet, we see people... There, there ought to be as many regulations to for most people to own a dog is there is for there's people owning dogs out there. I'm way more qualified to own a handgun. Why am I filling out paperwork and you're letting your, you know, you have this pit bull uh, rescue at your house and you're letting your grandkids twist his ears and letting their baby, letting their baby in a diaper climb on it. Yeah. And and I've, I've, and the whole time the body language of that dog is like, get this little shithead off of me or I'm going to kill him. Yeah. And yet they're just like, Oh, look at him. You yeah. know, so that's what we're dealing with as a culture. And that goes back to a question we were ta- or a topic we were talking about a few minutes ago. Yeah. And what people don't understand is that the credit for what these dogs are is to us, to human beings, and how we've bred these things and how we've changed their genetics to the point that, that we've used them as specialists and that how they their pack mentality is what has made them such is what's made them man's best friend. Mm-hmm. Well, how they are socialized and, and disciplined in a pack is through violence. People don't understand that. And so when a dog does use violence, all of a sudden it's the trainer's fault when there are 15,000 years of DNA that, that tells that dog that, you know, violence is the answer to dogs. Violence is the answer. Mm -hmm. And so people don't get it. They don't understand it. And it's, and like I said, it's up to us to educate them. And I, I've yet to understand how to go about doing it, but I'm open to any, any suggestions. One thing, one thing that we can always do is, We've got to come out of our shells. We've got to stop hiding. We've got to understand how we need to understand how to talk about hunting for years and years and years. 
um, we have lost control of the narrative on, on hunting, and especially houndsmen, what that means. Why do you hunt? And you hear people say, my grandpa's been hunting for the lot. You know, he hunted, my dad hunted, my great-grandpa hunted. Well, that's all great, man. Don't give up your legacy. Don't give up the heritage of it. Share that story. But that's not enough in today's mm-hmm. day and age. They're tearing down statues all across the United States because people don't like their history. And we're trying to change history. So that's not enough. Legacy and heritage is not enough anymore. We have to understand how to articulate and and talk about why we hunt and the value that that provides to people and the the place that this hound plays in that. You know, when you're talking to deer hunters, they need to understand that hunting bobcats or coyotes with these hounds is crucial to you being able to enjoy what you do. You know, when we're talking to waterfowl hunters, we need to tell them that small predator control is crucial. Turkey hunters, same thing. Quail hunters. This is all part of a big plan, and it all fits into a management plan. And if we don't know how to talk about that, then we get lost in the sauce when it comes to management decisions and different things like that. But when we know how to talk about it and we know how to network and we know how to talk to these key individuals, I'm not, you know, it's no secret. Deer hunters, bird hunters, and waterfowl hunters, they get the calls when it comes to fish and wildlife management issues. And unless we network with them and talk to them and show them the value of hound hunting, then we're going to, we're going to be left out in the cold. Heath, what's it like as far as deer hunters, because Chris, me and Chris are in the Midwest. Chris is borderline. I call anything west of the Mississippi Midwest. But <laughs> but you're you're farther east. It's a different world. Uh, the, the whitetail hunting culture has really really determined where we go as a hunting culture. Period. You know, everything is driven by whitetail. Is it similar out there? Do you have the big leases? Do you have have the trouble with white hunters that everybody else does? Yes and no. Um, it seems to be because we are more southern, where we're, you know, Appalachian. Um, the deer hunters understand it. It's mostly the people that move in, like you said, that move in from out of area and buy that mm-hmm. 30 or 40 acre tract and they want to come in and, you know, they don't understand it, don't want to hear it. Um, but the local people, it's it's give and take. I don't hunt. I don't run my dogs during deer season. Um, you know they. Well, let me rephrase that. You got bow season, muzzleloading, and then rifle season. So it comes in October. Deer season. Deer season from now on is like September first till yeah, February. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's so let's just say three <laughs> or four right. months. So during rifle yeah. season, most hound hunters do not run their dogs here during rifle season. Bow season and muddleloes right. season a little different. Um, but now that they've opened up Sunday hunting, a lot of us used to hunt on Saturday nights because we knew that Sunday was a free day. So I don't know how that's going to change, but we don't have much trouble with, I mean, I can't say that, that we have much trouble at all with the deer hunters here. Now down east, you know, I'm I'm on the far western side of Virginia where if you go five hours, you're down on the coast where they do have the, they run deer with dogs and they have the big, they have the big yeah. uh, timber companies or the big leases. 
um, that they run on. But it seems like because they're running dogs that they get along pretty good. If they see a bear, they'll call the bear guys and say, hey, come here and get this thing out of here. You know, we don't want it here because it runs our deer off. So there seems to be a pretty good relationship with that. Um, it was years ago, I mean, you and I were talking earlier, you know, back when I was coon hunting, that a lot of your hard, diehard deer hunters did not want your hounds on their property because they thought yep. that they were running their deer off. And then University of Kentucky put that study out, and I think I think Michigan maybe put another study out. And it's you know they showed that the hounds, if the hounds aren't running deer, the deer could care less. So I started using that. Yeah. They don't. They don't. Well, I started believe using it. that. They that don't study believe it. When I talked to them, I'm like, hey, you know, yeah. go and look at this study and look at it and yada yada yada. So, yeah, I, we don't have much trouble with that here. Um, not, not much. The problem with deer. The problem, the problem with deer hunters is that they all need an excuse for not killing a 190-inch deer. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. They need an excuse. It can't be, I suck at hunting. They can't say that. But, no, I mean, uh, well, and I'll tell, you another, I'll tell you another thing. The only place you'll hear the term down on the coast, down, down east, is when you live in Appalachia. Because you have to go off the mountain and go, go down to the flat the land. <laughs> All the rest of us say out west, yeah. out east, or okay. out west. Well, it's either east or west. There's east of the Mississippi, and there's yep. to the Rockies, and that's and I, it. And I, I can add this to what you were asking, Josh. So your big your bear hunters hunt on national forest. Um, yeah. So we use the bigger tracts of land that's open to the public. Your coon hunters typically try to stay out of national force because it's such rough country. And if, and if you've got a yeah. farm, you know, in the, in where I live, if you've got a farm, you know, a 30, 40, 50 acre farm, you, you're going to much rather want to coon hunt here. Um, so that divides up the, the dog usage some too. So it all kind of works itself out. It's, just, it's the same way here, but I am one of the few that love the national forest. Hmm. Uh, it's, you it wouldn't is, like it. You wouldn't like it in Virginia. <laughs> most, folk, most folks wouldn't like it in, in central to South Missouri either. Yeah. It, it's Ozark mountains. It's big Oak ridges and high mountains and it's rough and it's straight up and straight down. But I love it to the, so much because I can turn my mess with people. I can turn my dog loose in 80, 800,000 acres. I love, I can drive, I can drive to the way. middle cut my dog loose. I have no worries. Any way he goes. I'm yes. Good. And so I, I prefer it. Uh, but public land, that's another issue right there is that public land, especially in Missouri on the Northern half of the side is driven by certain types of hunting. Uh, our public land is, is mostly driven towards whitetail and bobwhite quail. Now I love the quail stuff because I'm a quail hunter, but Coon hunters have zero say in how that public land's managed. Well, that's what we're facing here in Indiana, and that yeah. was the cause of the rebirth or the revitalization, I guess is the right word there, for the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance is because the DNR was restricting the use of coon hounds on this public property. I've, I've heard that, and it's Hoosier National Forest. Mm -hmm. Hoosier yeah. National. Uh, not so much Hoosier National as it was um, – uh, the state fish and wildlife areas. Yes. They were trying to restrict yeah. them to hundred acre dog training areas or trying to restrict us to hundred acre. Because dog they areas. cater and 
to the fish and game departments, uh, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here. The, the deer hunters pay the bills. Yes. But M- Missouri, that's not the case. We have a, we have a sales tax. We have the greatest conservation department in the nation. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, we, we are funded independently by a fuel tax. Uh, everybody pays in not one, uh, particular, you know, game driven species or whatever decides what is what, but in Indiana and Iowa and places like that, deer hunters are what pay the bills. Well, it's, it's management of that property and habitat money that goes into the habitat is largely generated by the Pittman Robertson fund. Yeah. If you really want to know who's, who's foot in the bill for that, it's your recreational shooters. Yeah. Because your average, everybody that buys ammo. Yeah, your average hunter is going to buy. I mean, I got boxes of ammo that I've had for 10 or 15 years. My brother's a recreational shooter. Still need to teach him where that mute button is. Uh, recreational shooters will go through that the ammo that I do in a year in two hours at the range. So when you're talking about funding, yes, they, they do bring a lot of intrinsic income to a state. But the issue with Indiana is the fact that that they have deer hunters have a very large voice and a powerful voice and but here's the deal, the real deal that's killing access in Indiana it's the federal government that's putting stipulations on that PR money they have put stipulations on the state of Indiana and other states as well saying that the use of dogs, you've got to cut down traffic in these in these areas to enhance habitat and to preserve habitat. And that's the real killer um, is the federal stipulation. And what they do is it's like, if you don't, then we're going to cut back on your Pittman-Robertson funds. Yeah. That's the killer. And I'll tell you something that, that scares me about your gas tax in Missouri it may be good for the bankroll, but it also means that that fur baby mama driving the Subaru has a say in what you're doing with fish and wildlife habitat and fish and wildlife management in the state of Missouri. And that scares me. We've been lucky so far in that the Conservation Commission has been uh, fairly as bipartisan as you can get with the bureaucracy of government. Um, you know, you're, they're, their Conservation Commission is pretty diverse. Uh, but we see, we see the signs where well, the conservation commission is going to be more urban and they're not going to understand our lifestyle and things like that. But the biology and people get mad at the MDC biologists or any game commission biologists. The biologists are the ones that we really need to trust. They're, uh, just, mo- they're just scientists. Yeah. And they're you just know, putting they're, data. Yes. It's just, they don't data. have a feeling. Right. And so I'm, I'm pro-biologist, I'm pro-MDC, uh, so far so good. Uh, we have plenty of public land. Public land to the point that nobody hunts it despite the fact that it's fantastic raccoon hunting because we can't drive to every tree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really the only reason that nobody hunts it. And that's uh, the, a- Mar- the Mark Twain National Forest, of course, is not MDC, but the MDC does a really good job of, of maintaining and keeping open public lands for us to have that opportunity, whether that's going to stay that way. I don't know. We have to be vigil when it comes to that. You talk about, and I know this is the truth is largely a coon hunting podcast, and I'm just bringing these up to show people 
and get them thinking our coon hunters thinking about what is coming and what is happening. Uh, Texas is looking at a management study and a management plan for mountain lions. Right now in Texas, mountain lions are unregulated. The ranchers have kept that thing going for years. It's like, we don't want mountain lions here. We don't want them preying on our stock, blah, blah, blah. But now Texas has just released that they're going to start a management study with plans of uh, making a management plan by 2025. When you... And, and this is the thing that got my attention. They said, we are going to put together a focus group, and it's going to involve members of the ranching community, ag, hunters, and they call them those stakeholder groups, and animal welfare Ugh. groups. No hounds. Which means... No. Well, they talked about hounds, or they talked about hunters. But the thing that, the thing that really scared me is why all of a sudden is a well animal welfare group a stakeholder they haven't contributed anything to wildlife management over the years and when you look at these groups like the humane side of the united states center for biological diversity all these other groups that are out there getting in our way and trying to strip us of our freedoms they have done they've the the amount of money that they've contributed is minuscule compared to the amount of dollars the billions, six billion dollar a year industry of the hunting industry. I've always said that hunters are the biggest conservationists. And Heath, you'll you'll understand when I say because I'm not in bear country. You know, I have to go quite a few miles before I hit bears from where I live. But as a bear hunter, you don't want to see less bears. You don't want to see a a population that's on the decline. You want to have bears for your hounds to run. You want to have a stable, healthy population to where you know that your grandkids can do this and your great-grandkids and things like that. And these people focus on more of the individual bear. What was that bear uh, that, that walked on its hind legs? Oh, West Virginia. <laughs> yeah. yeah, wherever that thing yeah. was. Or that bear that made it from Minnesota to or Michigan or whatever, all the way down to Arkansas, and people followed it through Iowa yeah, or whatever. Yeah. They love that bear, that bear. They don't care about black bears as a whole. They love yeah. that bear. Right. Where, where houndsmen, like Heath, are, are more concerned about the species. Hunters are the greatest conservationists. Yeah, I mean, we have to I mean, we have to take care of the, the, the population. And you're right. We want to see them healthy. You know, we, you know for me... I don't have to treat two or three bear a day. That's not me. I can take my dogs out. If I treat a bear a day, I'd like to treat one every day, but if I'm hitting every other day or whatever, I'm happy. Um, but yeah, I, we try very hard to pick and choose what we take. Um, and we're going to try to do better this year with um, some things that, that we've read, some research that we've looked at. Um, but that doesn't, that's just us. That's just my small, our small group. You've got a lot of you got a lot of bear hunters in this area, and um, you know, unfortunately, everybody doesn't look at it through the same eyes. If I was hunting walkers, I'd be happy to catch a bear every <laughs> other day too. Uh, if he was hunting plots, he'd be happy to catch a bear a year. <laughs> hey, his number, his catch numbers go way up on a daily average when the plots come to town. That's just because he's saving the good spots for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're keeping the ones for you tied up. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'll tell you how it goes. You get to the top of top of the trail, and he's like, "Oh, you go ahead and walk those trashy things down there through that trail," and I, they disappear for the rest of the day. I mean, it's like they're going off on their own little. Is, their own is little that trail. is that a discount to your hounds, or is that a discount to you, Chris? Maybe well, they, they just don't want to hang were, out with you. That's probably both. <laughs> probably both. Yeah, yeah. I but you look, you look at the the guys I hunt with in Wisconsin. We hunted. We treed one, two, three, four bears last year, and I was there for three days, and um, we never we never shot a single one. Right. There were tag holders in our group in our party. Uh, I don't care to see a bear die. Uh, that has nothing to no bearing, absolutely zero bearing in why I wanted to go bear hunting. I wanted to see the dogs work, just like you guys do, just like most houndsmen do. They want to see the dog work. Uh, they want to have a good experience with their dogs chasing the game of their choice but we never took a single bear i never seen a single bear hit the ground i had a fantastic time and if they did they did if they didn't they didn't but every bear we treated was a was a juvenile bear or a female and so we just never took one never took one to to add some perspective to that josh last year um the plots were at 36 bear trees mm -hmm. and um out of those 36 trees, we shot one bear yeah. last year. Um, I'm not saying that's always a good thing, you know, for the population. But the reason that happened was because these hunters were being selective and they were self-regulating and they were looking up there, just like you said, juvenile, it was a female, um, you know, whatever it was, there was a reason why that bear was not harvested. So, Again, you know, we talk about hunters being the greatest conservationists. Houndsmen are even more so because we can we can examine what we've caught. And it's just like catch and release fishing. We can say yes or we can say no. Yeah. And um that's the so, only catch and release absolutely. style of hunting. Yep. That's it. Yep. That's 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 all there is. And I remember what was it was years ago chris when i put that video up of uh ranella had posted a video on instagram for me either about uh and it was hounds treat on a mountain lion and these are these are big game hunters uh upland hunters everything and they they lost their mind about how cruel that was look how scared this mountain lion is look how oh it's cheating and you guys know just as well as I do how hard it is to actually tree the game that we're hunting and, and get the dog ready to where it is where it is. But most folks don't understand that. And right. so you look, you look at those posts and it's disheartening at first, but a part of our being here is to educate those people about how difficult it is, how it's a uh, conservation plus and not a minus. Uh, we can actually, you know, if a great big bear walks out in front of a bow hunter, they, they don't always have time to see if this is a female or not. They don't they even don't, know that it's a big bear. Yes. They don't have the cubs. They don't see the cubs that are a hundred yards behind this bear. Uh, they see a big cat, you know, the, it may be shoot first, ask questions later, you know, but we have the opportunity to, through our hounds to be able to regulate those things and, and limit the animals that we take and an an accurate quota an accurate sex ratio of of animals treated animals taken etc and so 
conservation is always important, but people don't understand that. How on earth do we go about expressing that? Well, back to the plot dogs. Are you going? <laughs> Are you going to plot days, Chris? I I I need to. Oh, I, I, Josh, I didn't figure you? you would. Yeah, because I want I want to see a plot that will actually tree something. <laughs> Good luck. But I think it's this coming weekend, Chris. Yeah. Is it really? The, yeah, the seventeenth. Yeah. Yeah, it is. How close are you? Have I told you? Have I told you guys about the only good plot I no, have with? But I'd love to hear a good story. Uh, Peace Whiteheart this was is, a man. This is the truth. Remember that. This is the truth. I, okay. I will Come say nothing lie. but. Peace Whiteheart uh, is from Glenwood, Iowa. Great man, great houndsman. And when I was 20 years old, I hunted dogs for him. He would start them on coons, and then he would take them up to Wisconsin bear hunting. He had red bones and plots. That's all I hunted for him. I would take two pups a month from him and two pups a month from another client. And so I would hunt these dogs. I'd hunt them as hard as I could possibly hunt them. And he called me one day and said, Hey, I got a plot. He's a six year old male. I've never, I've never, I'd never yet to these days drew a plot in a hunt. I'd never turned one loose, never seen one go hunt. And so I said, yeah, that's fine. You know, I'll, I'll come get him. We'll work it out. So he sends me the six year old plot mail. And this is a coon treeing machine. This dog was good. I can't, for the life of me, I can't remember his name. But anyway, uh, I had a three-year-old blue tick. Yes, Chris, I had a blue Times tick. Times were hard, weren't a they? A good one. <laughs> Times are tough. Back when I was 20 years, 20 years old and I didn't have the money. But uh, I, had, I had this plot, and he said, turn him loose, uh, shoot him a few coons. Uh, get him in good shape. This is September. We got bear season coming up, and I believe it was October. He was going to Wisconsin. He wanted, to, wanted me to hunt him for 30 days. I said, no problem. I'll do it. And so I turned this dog loose by himself, and he trees multiple raccoons. Good coon dog. Very good coon dog. And I'm pouring coons out to him, and I'm hunting uh, walker dogs for another guy, Tom Cooney, out in Nebraska. And he's sending me pups out of his stud dog. And so I thought, well, there's no sense of wearing smoke, which is my, my old dog out. I said, I'll, I'll turn him loose with this plot. And so after I'd hunted this plot for two or three nights, I decided to take these pups with him. And so I turned the plot loose, uh, let him get treed. I had another dog that would, he would cover bad and he was a good coon dog, but I thought well, I'll turn him loose into this plot and, you know, I'll go in there and I'll try to get him fixed and we'll, we'll send him on. And so I turned the plot loose. He gets struck right in front of me. I turned the walker dog loose right behind him. Uh, the walker dog, I cut loose right as the plot locates. And he opens on the same track that the plot's running. And the plot had already treed. And as this walker dog gets within about 75 yards of this plot, I, he's actually being deaf. He's, he's doing the right thing. He's running this track like he's supposed to. This plot leaves the tree goes and attacks the walker dog and i have the biggest dog fight i've ever seen in my life in the middle of the woods this plot was the meanest thing i have ever laid eyes on and i told uh pete i said listen you can't turn this dog loose in a bear pack i said he's he's poison i said this dog's mean as a snake he said well they told me he was a little rough but you know i, th I think he'll be all right i said no don't do that 
And so after I'd hunted this dog for 30 days, I hunted him by himself after that. Good coon dog. Very good coon dog. The only good plot I've seen as far as just train raccoons. And uh, Pete called me about two weeks after bear season opened and said that he's not allowed at bear camp anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he said that dog liked to wipe out an entire bear pack as soon as he turned him loose. But that, that, that is my plot experience. That's the only good plot I've hunted with. But he was a country and machine, and he would probably do well at the Pro Classics. <laughs> <laughs> I think your I think your plot experience is about as deep as your bear hunting experience. It may be. Uh, it yeah. may be. That, like I said, that was the only one. I'll tell you, man. Uh, <clears throat> it's just it's funny how stigmas can get hold. You know, it goes back to that tribalism we started talking about in the yep. beginning. Blue ticks are slow, plots are mean, walkers are slick, tree and fools. Yeah, you know, and and it, it, I think we brought it full circle. Well, I think that the way plots are used, especially how what what percentage of plots are used in a big game pack? A lot. You know, most of them. I would say more than fifty percent. Oh, and so they have they have to have good tree manners. Yeah, to be in to be in that situation. You you turn a turn a pack of dogs loose i don't care what color they are yeah you know they're going to be treated in there for anywhere from an hour to 12 hours you know yeah. before you can get to them in some of the places in idaho i think and, that uh, stigma was placed on plots just because they were well, a, plot, a bear dog and they well, had to be gritty plot hunters started that so you freaking walker guys wouldn't come and hunt with us and blow up every race <laughs> you ain't gotta worry it's about like, I ain't, that i ain't going man. i ain't going with that plot <laughs> We started that. Heath, what do you what are your views? <laughs> you're you're over there growing and I want to hear what you think hey, about it. He he has hunted plots. <laughs> I, Don't let yes. him fool you. He ain't got and, none now though, does he? An old jack an old jack that, that he cried about on Christmas Eve was yes, a blue tip. I, so I I've had I had one really good plot, my old female. Um I always kind of chased her and never could find something that was as good as her. Um, I've had several good blue dogs. I, you know, I bought dogs from Dale Cameron and I mean, I mean, the guy had a conversation Thursday and, you know, he said the same thing that when Dale was alive, he got some really good dogs from Dale. But right now, um, you know, I'm hunting mixed up stuff and it is what it is. But, you know, y'all's talking about, it's kind of funny how, like I've had more trouble at trees with English dogs. Not the plots, not the really? walkers, you know, blue ticks, yeah. black and tans. My my experience they talk has funny. been English. Like <laughs> the English dogs has what I've yeah. had the most trouble with and what I've had experience with. Oh, I've had, I and I've been, I've said this before, but most of the dogs hunting in the, in the level that I'm hunting at are pretty mean. You know, when you get that but independence and you get that tree jealousy, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. they're not because you, you right. never see it. Yeah. But, but you take, I bet you eight out of 10 of these dogs competing in a pro sport or these pro classics are not going to tolerate a dog coming into them mm. at their tree. They're just not going to tolerate well. it. And so you're going to, you're, you don't have any fights because the other three dogs that they're turned loose with are the same way and they don't want to be with dogs either. And so, you know, I think in two pro sport hunts, I've never seen a dog at the same tree and multiple pro classics. You rarely see a dog at the same tree. That's a, that sounds like a good topic for the next episode of the truth. Yeah, we should get into that. Yeah. 
I would love to. I'd love to dive into that. That. Topic. Look, Josh, don't you have a litter of pups on the way or getting ready to? I got one coming. They're due September third. Yeah, excited about those. I'm very excited because I've been three years in between pups, two years uh-huh. in between pups, litter, litters of pups that I've raised, and I haven't found anything that I liked in between. And I've I've decided that I've got to raise them uh, and and hunt them and and do what I'm supposed to do with them, or I'm not going to like them. Yeah, anyway. we, but go ahead. It's a good female. It's a good male. We're excited about the cross, and I think they're going to be all right. But you know, just like I do, you never. Yeah, me and Wesley had a conversation this actually this evening. You know, I've been through a, a pile of pups um, over the last two years, and I don't have any of them now. The pups that I've raised this last yeah. litter, you know, I've got I've got high hopes. Um, I actually took one into a tree with me today. Um, I kept three and I, I took one into a tree with me today, but you still don't know. Like you just, you just don't know. No. They're going to be able to, to, to do all the things that I'm, that I want them to do. But yeah, I seen you had posted that and I was just kind of curious. So. Well, we bought dog and I'm not a big dog buyer. Uh, I'm not a big dog. I want to raise them from birth until hunting, hunting age. And that seems like the best bet for me. It's not for everybody. I realize that, but I haven't had any luck. Uh, me and Finley are lucky in that we like the same style of dogs, and that's why we're we're pretty good together. But man, I tell you what, we we bought Hazel. Uh, she's getting ready to have these pups, but she was an absolute diamond in the rough. It's hard to find a dog that that suits you that you didn't raise yourself and so i'm i'm excited to finally raise one myself again that's how i've made my living and and all that stuff and jed the same way everything that he hunts is out of his stock and everything that i hunt is out of either his or my stock and so we're glad to get back to that good deal well hey before we sign off i just kind of recap i want to make an appeal to coon hunters don't be thinking that you're safe you're not yeah you know the the anti-hunting crowd is coming after you in ways that you don't even realize you know it's it's breeding bills it's tethering bills it's housing bills it's bring your dog in if it's below 32 degrees it's you know i've known coon hunters have been traveling across the country that that had the had the officials called on them the law called on them for you know, having dogs in dog boxes overnight in motel parking lots. Um, it's, you've got to get involved. And a lot of times I feel like that, that a lot of these coon hunters, myself included, you know, I'm still a coon hunter. We cannot be so caught up in running to the next hunt that we lose sight that they're is not not going to be the next hunt if you don't get involved now. It's it, the time is now. There's never been a more urgent time to get involved and pay attention to what's going on. Slow down, see where you can help. What uh, before we sign off? I've talked about the Missouri Sporting Dog Alliance, the Kansas Housing Federation. We've talked about the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance. What other organizations are there out there that we can really key on to to be a part of? Heath, you got a good one. 
I mean, we've got the Virginia Bear Hunter Association if you do big game, and then we have the... Um, Not just if you do big game. If you do anything. Yeah. Virginia's got, got a... Alliance. Yeah, lines. that's a good one to get, get in. Yeah. I think if you get on anything that is dog-related, any, any hound alliance, any you know, tree dog association, anything like that, that you can get. It's, there's going to be one somewhere close to you. You just may have to do a little research and, and find out where it's at, but you should be able to get a hold of something in your area that you can, you can start participating the in. Yeah. The houndsmen in these States know what their state organization is. And, and I know there's a lot of people that have become disenchanted because maybe they saw mishandling of, of issues and maybe money or whatever. Well, man, you got to be the one to step in and get involved. You've got to be yeah. the change that you want to see. And sitting about back and griping about it isn't going to get it done. And every one of these organizations is looking for help. Everyone. So before you make that next social media post about, I never joined that, make sure you're picking up the phone and, and offering to help. And there's some organizations out there that don't want your help because it's a good old boys club and they want to keep it that way. Well, then it's time to start looking at either taking it over and getting getting involved and pointing in the right direction or something like that. But it can help happen if you don't get involved. Well, the last, like and you and I talked about it before, but just to put it out there again, joining organizations, one thing, you got to show up. You don't have a voice if you don't show yeah. up. You can pay those dues and be a member, but you need to be an active participating member is, is, is what you need to be doing. So show up. Yeah. And it's, yeah, we're, it's, we're not proactive enough. And you, it's not going to take a lot of your time. I mean, they need somebody to flip burgers at one event. They need somebody that can take, you know, help clean up after one event. Um, it's not like you got to plan events or, or sit on a board or, or whatever, you know, it, it can be something, Maybe they just need you to go around and put posters up and don't shoot my dog at every sporting goods store and gas station in your region. That is something that you can do. And, um, yeah, it doesn't take that much time. And if everybody does a little bit, that's a lot. Heath, while I got you on here, I want to talk about bite training. All right. <laughs> All right so I've got Bogan. And the reason I got Bogan was because I wanted to start with a healer because I felt like they had the right genetic mindset to what I wanted to do as a protection dog. But if I couldn't control them, they weren't going to kill nobody. Mm. <laughs> and so he's at, uh, he's 15 months old now. Uh, his basic obedience is pretty solid. Uh, he's going to heal when I tell him to heal. He's going to heal on whatever side of me I wanted him, want him to be on. Uh, he's going to watch whatever I want him to watch. If I want him to guard a truck, you know, if I put him in the front of the truck, he's going to be fine. I have a bike guard for, uh, actually my son, God bless him, has been bitten by this dog more than I can think of. But I want to know that when I, I tell this dog that he's done, that he can be done. Now, so far I've used the e-collar, pretty good success. I tell him clear. Uh, but I'm having to push that button every time we're going through bite training. And so if I don't have that button and I say that dog's done, what, what am I doing wrong? I know I'm doing something wrong because this is my first protection dog. Uh, he's really good at, at 
if I sick him on anything, he's going to bite it. And he's, he's very gritty. He's going to keep hold of it until I tell him not to. But when I tell him not to, I'm going to have to push that button or he, or he's not going to quit. So I I got to go back to the foundation. What, before you Mm -hmm. started pushing the button, how was you getting, and let's just use a toy. How was you getting a toy? How was you getting, when you first started telling him to bite, like, I mean, I've got yep. my cone right here. Like, this is this is the first right. thing my dog starts biting. Yep. So, yep. what did you use to 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 start the bite, and what um, action or what? How are you getting him to get away from it? I was using a bite guard, an arm bite guard on a on a stick and string, uh-huh. and I was holding it out in front of me. I was healing him in between my legs. Uh, I would give him his bite command. He would launch, bite, and I would have to physically get that dog, open his mouth, and remove him until I started using the e-con. Okay. So there was nothing in between. Uh, there was not really nothing yeah, in between. So, you, I, so if that bite, whatever you're using that bite guard he's extremely frustrated with you i, I believe it <laughs> and like i said i'm a rookie i'm i'm open to any it's suggestions fixable. it's fixable um you gotta get something with lesser value um knowing okay. a blue healer if if it was me i would probably get a piece of um like one and a half inch pvc pipe about okay. six six or eight inches long and yep. let him bite that and then you hold it still, you clamp down on it, and whatever his out command is, I don't know, like, you know, mine, clear. Clear. So you, yeah. when you have to hold it, and you can't let him play with it, because if he puts that thing in motion, then it's the game's on. So you have to hold yep. it. Sometimes I'll lock it down on my knees and hold it really tight. And then when you see that, that mouth doing this, clear, he comes out. And then you tell him to bite it right again. So whatever your bite is, um, bite it again yep. and just kind of repeat that. If that doesn't work, um, do you have a slip lead by chance? Okay. I do. So slip lead. Put the slip lead over him. Make sure that it comes right here so when you pull. So you put him on that PVC pipe. Right under his and chin. the reason we're using PVC pipe because it's hard and they can't crunch it, so right. it has less value. So put that on him. Yep. Um, have your son or whoever stand behind you, and when you say clear, he pulls that string, so it it pinches here, and then yep. he'll spit it. And when he spits it, as soon as he spits yep. it, give it right back to him. So you're just telling him. You're just pairing this word with the out or clear. <clears throat> and right. then as he learns that as he gets to where you don't have to put that um, slip collar on him or lead, as he gets where you say clear and he comes off, then you make him wait. Clear, sit. Yes, you can have it. Does that make sense? That does make perfect uh, sense. And I understand. Another question I had is, how do I get this dog? Cause I'm having a hard time getting strangers <laughs> to get bit by this dog. <laughs> but, but it, or, how do, how do I, how do I get him? How do I, how do I get him from not targeting my son? First of all, who has been 
75% of his training versus I can't get another stranger over here to put a bike now, guard on. What is a bike guard? And, I don't know exactly what you're saying. I'm talking just an arm like guard. A, a jute sleeve? Uh, yes. A jute sleeve? Yes. Okay, sleeve. well, first of all, take yep. your son out of the picture because he knows that he gets to play with him now. That's fun and game. Yes, so, right. boom, I'm coming to you every time because I get to play. Yeah, yeah, but I can't find anybody else to put it on and get better by uh, this dog. Um, I mean, it's, that should be really simple. I don't know. You would I mean, think, but I'm thinking, hey, buddy, come over here. Put this put this thing on your arm, and I'm going to send my dog after you, and he's going to yeah. bite you. And I'll cook you a steak. And, yeah. and, and yeah, a really good bourbon, yeah, whatever. But, yeah. But everybody says, no, well, I'm good. You can, do, you can take your son out of the picture, and you can use that bite sleeve or whatever you're using, the bite guard. Yeah. Um, you can put it on to objects. You can actually make okay. take your broom handle and fix you a thing where you can stick it out. You can be doing obedience yeah. around the dog, have him at a down, and then boom, boom, get it. And that way yeah. it takes the human out of it for you guys. Um, I've done that in the past, but what what if I have to send this dog on a human well, and he doesn't see that? Yeah, you know, as as it's not it's not on you know whatever. Yes, I understand what you're saying. At at that point of training, you're going to have to have somebody like be the decoy. Somebody's going to have to right. be. When you take these dog food, say, "Hey, I'm going to give you dog food, but you got to get a bite. You got to take a bite." There you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I might, and I've I've actually tried that in the past. They've all said no. Oh man, I mean that would actually you can keep your. I would food. take a bite off a healer any day over a hundred pound shepherd. Yeah, that that's what I, I said mean, too. You know, the reason I started with the healer is because they have the same. Uh, they they kind of have the same genetic uh, personality, and then actually he's barking right now. Someone's pulling up in my driveway, but uh, they have that same mindset. But they're not as large, yep. and they're not. So as my intended. buddy had a blue healer that he taught to bite, but he used the healer's natural ability to bite the leg. So he had yeah. him hitting hitting the lower leg between the knee and the. Yeah, he does. He has that, but I've taken that away. With I'm um, I'm trying to focus him. When we first started him, we started with the decoy up to where he had to uh -huh. jump at it, to where he had to get you know in the air a little bit, or he had to raise up instead of taking that that healer instinct away from Do you him. have a way to back tie him? Should you yeah. have a harness oh, yeah. or something? Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, he wears a harness. Anytime we're doing work, Good. he's in he's a harness. He's in drive, right. Yes, he's always in a harness. When I put that harness on him, he knows it's, so it's time can, to go to when work. When you're doing your outwork, put him on the, the harness, back, back, back tie yep. him so he has an apex. He can't come past that apex. And when you're working that yep. out with him, you can pull that lead like that. You can pull your lead tight, um, and it gives you a little bit more control over the out instead of having him trying to run around your legs yep. and in your legs and doing everything yep. else. Yep. So, yep. yeah, I mean, come to Virginia, I'll catch him. I'm, I'm going to do that. Um, we're going to do that. He, he's getting ready to bite somebody that's walking in my door now. It's probably Finley. I hope he just gets him by the leg and just really eats him up. Mike Finley take a bite to her from him. <laughs> He needs to, but yeah. he won't. He babysits him even sometimes, but he won't let him bite him. Well, and one of the things <laughs> the Europeans taught me, so when I started... Hold on just one yep. second. Boom! Tonight. 
Hey, you see that? You see right, that go ahead, mark, Heath. You see that little <laughs> microphone thing down there? That's a mute button. <laughs> well, I, sometimes Bogan needs to shut his mouth. So, the, the Europeans <laughs> taught me that when I throw the toy, boom, I tell my dog yep. the bite command, which is for me, it's still, it's still. I do that too. Everything he wants him to bite. I'm, I'm not going to say my bite. Yeah. Everything yeah. you want him to bite, that's what you, you tell him that yep. word. So. Yep. And he loves to retrieve. So I do yep. that with him too. It's not a bumper, but it's a Kong just like yours or a similar toy where I'll heal him up. I'll throw it. He's not allowed to go get that thing unless I give him yep. the bike, man. Yep. Good. No, you're doing okay. good. Yeah. Like I said, come Virginia, okay. we'll catch him. All right. We're going to, we're going to do that. I want to do that anyway. I'm going to come out there and go bear hunting. I'm going to get pal with his junk ass plots and we're going to come right. out there one of these days. You'll be, yeah, you'll be amazed. <laughs> I might be, I might be. Do we got anything else, fellas? Uh, I was going to say something, but I can't. Oh, all time. I just was going to, I was going to tell you. Yeah, there you that, go. Anybody that's not listening to the journey, on Wednesdays, what you heard yes. from Heath High right there, you're going to get that. Plus, you're going to get how he ties it back into those things that apply to your hounds. Yeah, All those training concepts are totally transferable. And if we're looking in our own echo chamber to devi- develop better hounds and train our hounds better, we're never getting anywhere. So that's why we call it the journey. That's why Heath chose you know that, that concept because, man, there's so many things we can learn from other dog trainers and breeders and make our own interests and passions better so there you go there's a plug Heath. glad to have you back josh like i said i'm glad to be here to virginia we will fix that in a day i need to i i want to i want to i want to see heath give me some uh pointers of someone because part of what i preach is humility and knowing that you don't right and so, you know, I, I've never I'm trained a perfection dog. <laughs> <laughs> he does all the time. <laughs> but you you have to realize that there are people that are better at this than you are. And and Heath is one of those guys, especially as the protection guys, yes, or protection dogs come. Hounds yeah. not so sure, but yeah, bite, work, I, I, bite work, <laughs> I got you. I got you covered. There you go. And and I, I always have said... Uh, find someone that knows more than you do and do yeah, what they do. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, thanks yep, for coming, thanks guys. For having us. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. This Good is stuff. the truth on the Houndsman XP Podcast Network. And like I said, we're we really appreciate Chris and Heath coming on here. We're going to try to make this a fairly regular occurrence. I hope you guys keep listening, and we'll we'll see you next time.